it would be one thing to be a member of one of the most influential bands in recorded history, but it's another thing to be part of two of them. And it's another thing to suddenly find yourself becoming a highly respected record producer for people like No Doubt, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, The Violent Femmes, The Crash Test Dummies, The Verve Pipe, Rusted Root, and many, many more. It's another thing to also be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because that is what Jerry Harrison has been doing for the last 50 years. Jerry Harrison was not only a member of the Talking Heads from 1977 until their official breakup in 1991, but he was also a member of the Modern Lovers, a band from Boston whose recorded demos in 1971 would go unreleased for years, but then become one of the most important records ever released. Jerry Harrison has found himself with former Talking Heads collaborator Adrian Ballou playing a handful of shows around the country with the band Turquoise. It's the first time he's toured in over 25 years. And we're going to talk about that and some of the other things that he's been up to. This is my conversation with the great Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Good to talk to you. Talk to you. You and I actually uh, met 31 years ago. A long oh, time. Really? Yeah, and I and I'm and I'm sure this must be indelibly stamped in your mind. But I was working for a, a, a radio station in Milwaukee, your hometown, and uh-huh. this would have been as you were releasing your final uh, solo record, which would have right. been which would have been you know, walk on water with the Casual Gods. And, nope. and you and you came into the studio with a couple of uh, digital audio tapes, one of uh, your solo stuff and and some of the other stuff that you had been producing. And nope. I I wish I had had the CD in front of me, but it was not yet a CD yet. And I looked at all the people that had helped you, and it was like Chris Spedding and Dan Hartman and Bernie right. Morrell and and Adrian Ballou. And it's like that was the last time you released a solo record, 1990. But it's remarkable what you've done. Since then, it's even hard to imagine how you could have ever done another solo record. What happened is I got successful and busy, and I had never reached that point that some songwriters get, that it's sort of always percolating in the back of their mind. Uh, You know, I think it takes when you do it for years and years and years, just continuously, it becomes a really a habit that uh, is easy to turn on and off. Uh, it was, uh, uh, and I. The only thing similar to that I have is there was when I was uh, in college, I I did a, a series of paintings and sculptures that were part of a my my uh, basically my thesis. And when I had the theme, and I had, you might say, some of the major decisions had already been made because you had a thematic uh, uh, path that you were going down. I could sort of turn that on and off. So I was doing that right in the middle of the Modern Lovers, and I would we'd be rehearsing the Modern Lovers, and I could almost go upstairs and immediately start painting. And but when you start, but the minute it becomes a a, a project that you're starting afresh, it's almost like uh, what does Billy Joel say that he becomes an animal? <laughs> the lock in a in some place and not be anywhere near his wife or he knows he'll get divorced and, uh... <laughs> to me it's kind of like you know when you're when you're sitting around and, and you're in lockdown and you look at all the things around your house that need to be done and you don't yeah. even know where to start it's like yeah 
maybe I'll just figure out what to do for lunch. Well, I don't know if it's quite that, because I think it's more that the, at least for me, composing an album, uh, you know, I, I was pretty, I didn't really have that much problem with composing music, but uh, feeling satisfied with the lyrics was always a challenge. And having worked with such great lyricists as Jonathan Rick and David Byrne, it's pretty easy to feel a little self-conscious about that. <laughs> and so it's funny because I've worked on projects as a producer and ended up writing, oh, you know, a great deal of the lyrics of a song quite a few times. And that was, you know, then again, okay, well, I know what it's about. Okay, well, here. And I, and I just would, it would, came out very easily. But yeah, I, I, w- I would like to do, I wish I had done more. Uh, continued with solo work, but as you said, I was like I just sort of took off as a producer, and I was like just working continuously for a long time. I want to get into some of uh, into some of that in, in a little bit, but one of the things that I've noted in, in in preparing for this interview was this wonderful video I I had seen of you and Adrian Ballou playing with the band uh, Turquoise. Last year was the 40th anniversary of Remain in Light, and and yep. you guys had uh, played Cross-Eyed and Painless, and it sounded just so damn good. And, and and there's a couple questions I have with that. First of all, of any band in the world that you could have chosen to play with you on something like that, you chose Turquoise. In a way, I can see why, because there there are some real similarities to their sound and, and talking heads. But but why specifically those guys did you choose to, to play with? Well, I think that there were other candidates that could have worked. But um, I had produced Turquoise, so therefore I was really quite familiar with them as not only people, as players, and I knew how influential Talking Heads music was on them. And when I, I had some, basically I had uh, the opportunity to go to Nashville quite a few times in the last, say, 10 years or eight years, and Adrian lives in, in Nashville, and we would have dinner, and we'd always talk about how there was just something magical about uh, this concert, uh, Rome 1980, on YouTube of, of that first handed band. And he was always saying, my fans always just say that that is the happiest and most joyful concert they've ever seen. And we said, well, we should try and do something like that. And... You know, there was uh, some thought to giving to, like, putting a band sort of de novo together, which maybe would have been studio musicians. And I said, you know, I think we should have someone that has an audience. So we have to find someone that has an audience, but that is not, that is still willing to, like, you know, sort of devote the time to do this, uh, to, to devote to, like, playing Remain in Light properly. And uh, so Turquoise proved to be the people that thought it was a great idea. And I have to say, it, it's borne out to be perfect. We, uh, we have done uh, three shows now, and uh, the audience reaction couldn't have been better. So this is the first time that you've been on the road in 20 years, 25 years? Yeah, just about 20 years. I think in the mid-'90s, I did a tour with Chris and Tina for the No Talking Just Heads tour. And that's the last uh, time I was on the road. I mean, I've obviously played benefits, and, and I, someone said to me, like, I mainly play benefits and memorials these days. 
it's yeah, it's like you only see you know extended family during weddings and funerals, exactly. But uh, so it's like a, but uh, so this has been great fun and really really great. And God, do we you know uh, you know we rehearsed for really nice four days in Connecticut and then went down and played Peach Fest in Scranton, Pennsylvania. You know, it was about 15,000 people. We went on at 12.30 at night. I wasn't sure if, like, my stamp, my adrenaline would still work <laughs> well, but it had no, no, no tiredness. I can't even imagine what it's like to be, you know, a, a, any band, Turquoise especially, gets a chance to play with, with Jerry Harrison of, of the Talking Heads, but also Adrian Ballou, who I think is, like, maybe one of the most gifted and unsung musicians in the world. I mean, what a... What a thrill it must have been for those guys to play with the two of you. It really, it, uh, well, they they say that over and over again, and I think that that's how they feel. And that's also, that's what's been, I think they were, you know, they're a band, you, you can imagine certain bands that could have done this that maybe are, so, um, I don't know, they not so much popularity that, they want to make sure that they're fanning their own audience just the way they want. But I think Turquoise, we hit Turquoise at a perfect place in the, in the development of them as uh, in their popularity so that this was only enhances their reputation and, their, uh, and, and, and people knowing about them. I mean, certainly watching that video you know, prompted me to watch other videos of the band. And I was like, okay, I can totally see why they may have been handpicked for this project, because there is something very clear where their influence is coming from, you know, with the talking head. So, I mean, it was a good, I think it was a very, very good choice. But the version of Cross-Eyed and Painless, I think, was just absolutely flawless. And and those are, everything off Remain and Light cannot be necessarily easy to reproduce on stage. It's true. There's a, there's a delicacy to it, and that's why it's really good that I, I think that me the most, because in fact, when we first, rehearsed the first big band with Adrian. David had, David and I, David had gone off to California with Dave Jordan and, and mixed a few songs, and I stayed with Eno in New York to mix songs. Meanwhile, I started the rehearsals for the tour, and uh, David got back. We had four days of rehearsals, and I did the first two day without, teaching everybody the parts without David, and then David showed up. And we can, you know, we finished it off and went up to Toronto in a festival at Mossport, which was called Heatwave, which was the first unveiling of the big band. It just had a spectacular show and then came back to Central Park. And then it was really, you know, at first it was an experiment. And then we said, well, we just have to do this. So we found a way to do it and continue with it. And it, it was great fun. And it, not to take anything away from any of the other bands, you know, leading up to, we'll say, the culmination of making the film Stop Making Sense. But there was, you know, with Adrian in particular, he he had uh, has such a unique style on guitar, which was such a great addition. And, you know, he played, I think, one of his best solos of all time on the great curve on Remain in Light. And so... People get to see that live. It's pretty, pretty wonderful. I uh, I interviewed him not too long ago, and and I recalled a story that I had seen him, him with David Bowie, and I said, you know, whenever you see David Bowie, it's hard not to look at anything else but David Bowie because it's David Bowie. But but just watching him play, I actually find myself more drawn to to him because of the uniqueness and and the style that he brings is unlike anybody else. 
and he was having so much fun. That yes. and I know for him, playing with you guys, especially on that tour, was just as much fun, if if if, if maybe even more so in a lot of ways. But he but he always says that he just fit in immediately and always just felt incredibly welcome and comfortable, and it was just. It was a it was a wonderful tour, and I'm so you know he's played on some of my other solo records, so you know as it worked out, um, I'm I'm from Wisconsin, and when my I met when I my wife is also, and so when she got pregnant, we would go back to Wisconsin every year, every, not every year, but every time she was pregnant for her to deliver the baby, and we would you know so we would be there for months, and I had inherited my parents' house there. And Adrian was living down in Lake Geneva, which was one of the studios I used all the time. So we, you know, somewhat accidentally, we have just sort of seen each other, uh, you know, over the years in a way that, like, I don't think anybody else at Talking Heads has seen him. So we've, you know, kind of re- re- retained a really good friendship. Uh, I read Chris Franz's book last year and had the chance to, to interview him you know, just before the, the book was released. And you know, one of the things that was, that was very clear, and, and even when, I, you know, when you and I spoke many, many years ago, we talked about it because at the time, I mean, the Talking Heads hadn't performed in, in almost two years. But one, right. of the, one of the things that became very clear in, in, in Chris's book, and it's, obviously it's not just all about the Talking Heads, but you know, there's this misconception that the Talking Heads were just a one-man organization when in fact that's it's simply not true and then that this was very much a a a band in which everybody had a presence and everybody had its influence on all that music and yet the general consensus is it's david burns band and that's and that's simply not accurate would you say that's true well i certainly think it was you know everybody in, in, in talking heads was really talented and really smart and we each brought everything that we could bring to the sort of to the table to make the band a better band. And, you know, that didn't mean we didn't have our disagreements and, um, you know, potential resentments and things like that. You know, Dave, you know, David is, has a totally unique voice. Uh, you know, I was actually going to give a description of Adrian playing guitar but it also describes David is that like when Adrian plays the guitars, you know, you see a lot of other of, uh, you might say, uh, guitarists who are harnessing feedback and they have to be very, they're all, you know, they're very deliberate in like exactly where they are because they have to, uh, you know, be in the sweet spot where the, where the way the amplifiers are causing their strings to vibrate that it causes that feedback. Whereas it seems that Adrian could do it so completely by feel that he he could be moving around on the audience and still maintain that sort of be in the envelope of of the cage of feedback, you know. And I think that you know David's early voice that David had had an element of such abandoned uh, you know that uh, you know. I don't. And I don't mean this at all in a mean way, but like almost like a caged animal that he, when he did a yelp or he did a little, just a little scream or something like that. You know it. And I think that that raw emotion and energy was one of the one of the things that that um, 
uh, you know, it, it gave a sense of danger, almost you might say, to our to our uh, performances. And you know, and then you know, Chris is just such a solid and steady drummer that he provide you know with a great a great knowledge of particularly R and B music. And you know, so each person, you know, I had had the experience of being in the Modern Lovers. Um, I was probably the most schooled in music and knew the most music theory and stuff like that. So we each, at times, would solve problems and, and, and bring things to it. And I think you really see this when you see any footage of us as a four-piece. It's one of the reasons why it works so well for us to have all, we would just have all the lights on. Because every one of us had our own fans, and and we felt that, we were trying to direct the audience's gaze. They could go wherever they wanted, but it was sort of this ever-shifting diamond that you be looking at one facet or then another. I think that one of the things that happened that as we became a bigger band and the lights became more essential to our show is the audience's attention was then being directed all the time. And frankly, for the anyone other than being a singer... It was uh, you were. It was a lot easier for you to be a little more in the dark or a little in the background. You know, I, that was something that I sort of was dis. I, I was sorry to see the other thing go, but I understood the need for that. But I took such pride in the fact that basically I had put together that band, um, that the Remain of the band, which then grew into the Stop Making Sense band. So I always thought of the band as sort of an extension of me and that their success was my success. One of my great disappointments is that I, you know, I had maybe two different opportunities to see the talking heads and, and for whatever reason was not able to do that. And then I see stop making sense. And, uh, and it's just, it, it's just one of the most remarkable performances ever filmed and, and, and maybe the greatest concert film of, of, of all time. So, I mean, your effort in putting that band together and the orchestra and, and the, and the, the choreography of, you know, one piece coming after another. It is kind of very much like the way you made Remain in Light, one piece after another, and kind of like a Brian Wilson modular yeah. fashion. It just all builds. It's just like, it's such a remarkable, it was such a remarkable undertaking to show it in that way. That it, you, yeah. just, you just wonder what might have been next had the band continued to play live and continued to to go on. And if it had been less complicated of a relationship between the three of you and and David, whether that would have even have been possible. Well, it's, it's certainly seemed possible to me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, and I think Chris and Tina would agree with you. You know, I, I you know, I never, I, I would, uh, you know, I was sort of Switzerland in this situation, as they say. Um, uh, you know, having been through the Modern Lovers sort of, uh, you know, sort of flaming out and burnt, you know. I understood, you know, how people's changing taste and changing um, views on music could, something that had had not quite ever reached its, uh, its fruition or actually, you know, people had never quite seen it at the level it could be, how that could happen. And so I was like, you know, sort of, hellbent on making sure that didn't happen with Talking Heads, and I did everything I could to sort of uh, steady, the, steady the ship. You've uh, you mentioned the Modern Lovers a couple of times, and it's 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 one of these stories where you know, the more I read about it, the more I'm, I guess I'm left wondering 
what might have happened because this is, you know, this is a band that was way ahead of its time at a time when record companies were very interested in signing you. And all of a sudden in the middle of negotiations, Jonathan Richmond decides to switch it up. And all of a sudden now you're no longer a band. And, you know, when that album of demos eventually came out, you know, many years later, you know, people heard that and say, this, this album is, is beyond its time. And you may, maybe could have been as important as, anything the Velvet Underground came out with. What's in, in all those years, try to explain what did happen and the frustration of seeing something so close all of a sudden become uh, something that just fell apart. Well, uh, you know, to a degree, I think that the modern lovers are the, are the beginning of what I would of truly the beginning of punk rock. And this is not to say that the Velvet Underground and the Stooges uh, in particular, were not huge influences on us, but I don't know if I would consider them punk bands. Uh, I, th- I think of the essence of punk as uh, being that if I have an idea, no matter whatever dexterity and talent I have on my instrument, I will find a way to express my ideas and get my uh, uh, ideas across. And I think that, so, which was a great democratization, I think the music had been going in a more and more professionalized, uh, you know, you had the rise of, uh, you know, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, mm-hmm. and Yes, and Fog Rock in general, where people were talking about what music academy they'd gone to. And, and you know, and it also got very, very overwrought, in my mind, overwrought and over overdone. I mean, I quite liked Keith Emerson and the nice, but I really didn't like Emerson and Lincoln Palmer particularly. And because the nice had a rawness to them. And of course, when he stabbed the keyboard with the, with the knife, with a Bowie knife to hold down a note. Uh, so Jonathan, the thing is what I think what really happened to the modern lovers is that we had in Jonathan and in David, we had, people with very strong ideas about what, where the band should go. And they were diametrically opposed. Jonathan and I would say myself were very much about capturing the moment because the modern lovers were very uh, much a band who the quality of our performance could really be influenced by the sound of the room and what we were hearing on stage, we, we adapted to the environment very much, kind of chameleons of the space. Whereas David wanted everything to be as almost rigidly worked out and being, you know, so that you would never make a mistake and everything was exactly perfect. And it's actually what he did with the cars. The, <laughs> David Robinson is really the architect of the sound of the cars. He always wanted wanted the modern lovers to sound to do sound like 1910 Fruit Company, like Yummy Yummy and the Archies. Right. And the bass player was always going boom 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 boom. <laughs> and, and it sounds like David Robinson got exactly what he wanted out of out of, out of uh, joining the Cars. That's exactly right. He, yeah. He, he he crafted their image. He crafted their sound. You know, and Rick carried off with a good songwriter and an effective singer, and they were a big success. 
Jonathan, on the other hand, was about being in the moment. And I don't think any of us quite realized it, but Jonathan also being younger than us, he was still going through the, let's say, the growing pains of of coming out of high school and finding yourself as a person. And so the those songs that, you know, are so beloved that are on the, as you said, the demo tape that was released originally on Berserkly Records, talk about a sort of teenage angst and fr- frustration. Yeah. And, but, you know, one always would think, it's like, why would you want to do that forever? You wouldn't. And, you know, I think of a person in a similar position as Gordon Gano of the Violent Femmes, who obviously that first Violent Femmes record captures that that frustration, that teenage boy frustration as well as any album on earth. But they, you know, he still does it. And, but it's partially, I think, to make money. Um, And, you know, I, I think the person most trapped by that was probably Chuck Berry who had to play songs he wrote over a period of about five years for the, the next 60 years. And, you know, Lord. So Jonathan, you know, just switched up. I just made a new record with Jonathan, and and I made a previous one called Sa, S-A. It's on Blue Arrow Records out of Cleveland. Really little record company. And they're, both of these records are really unique and quite wonderful, but they certainly are part of his new, delicate, quiet style. You know, Jonathan has his sort of wanting to keep it down so that he can sing without a microphone, so he can walk around the stage, address the audience, and, and be very, very, you know, taking the personal really, really, really far. And, you know, I think the disappointing thing is, is we should just have, you know, understood that Jonathan was going through that, going to, go, going to go through changes and that we should have not been waiting around for the perfect record deal, the perfect manager, the perfect producer, and all the things that we did that ended up sort of delaying when we really tried to make the final record. And, you know, and the record we made was obviously nowhere near as good as what we had done a year earlier when we made those demo tapes. But still, I mean, it had to be incredibly frustrating to have gotten that far and to not have completed something and released it in 1972. Not only was it frustrating, but I had spent a considerable amount of my own money to try and get us to that point. And uh, not to get paid back was kind of devastating, too. When the talking heads essentially dissolved and i and i know it was kind of like a kind of a, a a cool fizzle because it didn't exactly just end right away it it just it took time before it just became clear that this wasn't going to happen again when that happened did you have the same kind of frustration with that situation that you may have had with the modern lovers i mean it, there seems to be some kind of parallel that there's these are two bands that may not have had you know maybe the closure that everybody wanted well, I certainly had, you know, we had stopped touring in 1984, so, you know, we were making good records, but, you know, it seemed that, you know, I thought we got to go on forever uh, working, you know, I mean, I said this to David when he did finally decided that he was just going to formally pull the plug, and I said, David, you know, you're in the perfect position, you get all the credit. And 
that gives you the freedom to make whatever record you want. I mean, he's made, you know, these very obscure records like the knee plays they did for Robert Wilson, which is sort of um, recycled trumpet and, you know, horn music from that was in, in the public domain down in, in New Orleans. And, you know, and, the, and he gets a good review in the New York Times and, you know, Low Austin and Warner Brothers goes, look at my genius do something so out there, and that's great. Because he got the, you know, whereas when I did a solo record, it had to, it had to have some commercial success or I wasn't going to get to do another one. And I said, David, I think, you know, you're going to put yourself in the position. You're going to find yourself, like, you know, for a long time we felt like, oh, I don't know, we were a bit snobby. We liked the David Letterman show, but we're not particularly fan, big fans of say, Jay Leno or something like that. And we, so we would go on the Letterman show, but we wouldn't go on the Jay Leno show. And we, you know, and I said, you're going to f- suddenly find pressure that you're going to be doing all these things that we say no to, that the record company's not going to let you say no to. Right. Why, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to give up the control you have and the power you have? I said, for working, we, could, we can keep this band together for working six months every two years. And you'll get, you'll have, and you'll have all that freedom. And, you know, I just said, well, maybe I have to learn that. (laughs) Well, that was what happened, you know. And, but, you know, I had, you know, I had already sort of started out. I had, uh, you know, I would have liked to pursue my solo uh, albums further. I ended up, you know, kind of losing money making them. And when I started having, and I, I have to say, I, I got some advice as well as a little bit of a push from my wife saying, you know, you have kids now. Being a producer is a really good way to be able to be home and see, know your kids and not spend your life touring. And if it's not going to be as successful as I know you want it to be, or it's going to take a long time, maybe this is a better way to go. And then, of course, I had the best producing year of my life where I did Crash Test Dummies and Throwing Copper in the same year. You know, and then I ended up getting into starting internet companies and doing other things out here, which um, I certainly could have had more success with them, but I'm, you know, I don't know if you know much about all of the stuff I've done like that, but it's been really great for reinvigorating my interest in science and keeping afresh of in the world of inventions. I, I did want to ask you about Ophorex. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a company that has been trying to come up with antidotes for, for snake bites. You, you're, how did you get involved in, in something like that? It's actually really funny. Is I had a party, and there had been a recent article me, as me as a producer with a picture of me on the cover of a magazine saying, Jerry Harrison helps other people realize their dreams. And... <laughs> This friend of mine brought a fellow neuroscientist MD with him uh, to the party, and I just was, it was a beautiful June afternoon, and I just said, I saw that there was a lot of smart people sitting around in my kitchen, and I said, does anyone here have a great idea they haven't done something with? And this guy goes, well, I have this idea about, you know, saving people's lives who have been bitten by neurotoxic snakes. And I said, well, we have to do this. And so I started helping him. I frankly thought this would just be something that would be like a handoff to the Gates Foundation, and like six months later we'd be done, right? Right. And they would they would they would handle the development, but that didn't happen. And 
I don't know. It's about eight years from them. We're in clinical trials for both snake bites and for uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. We actually feel it's a treatment for what most people die from COVID from. Is it the same treatment, or is it a treatment that's like an offshoot from from uh, from one of the uh, one to the other? It's basically a uh, in. An inhibitor of an of, of perhaps the most most toxic toxin in the sort of um, mixture of toxins that are in, in anti are in the venoms. Each venom is its own cocktail of toxins. And um, now there are certain snakes, interestingly, that do not have that much of this particular toxin, but this tox this uh, chemical also has an effect on the sort of the overall body reaction. It sort of damps down your the cascade of immunological responses. And just like you could die from shock from an auto accident, whereas before you die from the actual injuries from the accident, same as snake bites. So, we, so ours helps there. And really it's there and, and, and uh, protecting what are called the surfactants, which is the phospholipase um, coating of the alveoli in the lungs that is why it's so effective for uh, basically it's it's effective in in it's stopping and mitigating the cytokine storm which is often which can follow yeah the infection like the SARS-CoV-2 infection I, I know in the in, in the case of uh, venom exposure a lot of times what happens is there's simply just not enough time to get someone the medical help they they need Thank some. You. Some of this venom will, I mean, basically coagulate the blood on impact, and so that's right. Are, is this the kind of thing where you may see this being distributed much like, like an EpiPen would? I mean, something that you would take with you to use yes. at that moment. Is is that what the 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 ultimate goal is? Well, we think that there's going to be use for use. There'll be IV uses for it in the hospital. We actually have an oral formulation as well, so that you could have it in your pocket and take it and. You'd absorb it in a half an hour. We've uh, and we once we get through the some of the uh, current trials, we may do some experiments with various delivery mechanisms. There's some there's some new patches that are like lots of multi little pins, like little needles, you know. And so potentially you would slap that right where you got bit to get to sort of bring some. You might take the pill to get a systemic effect and then slap this right on the uh, on where you were you the bite took place there's also a companion uh, small cell inhibitor that we may uh, add to this sort of cocktail to uh, because that works very well on exactly what you're talking about localized effects right where you have a kind of a mixture of both bleeding and coagulation uh, you know, to great that's you know, to a great amount of tissue damage, and you know, very often people have need amputations or large parts of like muscles cut away and things like that. Yeah, I I don't, I don't like snakes, Jerry. I don't like snakes. I don't like uh, respiratory infections. I don't like either one of them. No, I, this I, is... I don't like them either. And <laughs> you know, and we actually someone in Boston. You're in Boston, right? Springfield. Springfield. I see. So actually, Derek Rossi. Uh, the guy, one of the, the founder of Moderna and one of the sort of uh, great, one of the inventors of the mRNA vaccines just just joined our scientific board. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, 
pretty exciting. It's an exciting time for the company. Do you have a, a date in mind? I mean, once you get past all these these trials and, and everything else, do you have like a like a soft date of uh, of eventual commercial release of this, or is this, uh, or is that well, too soon? Well, you know, it keeps getting pushed out a year, or so <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of detail in what the FDA FDA asks. I'm guessing uh, 2023, but I mean, I would. You know, it could be as early as 2022. I mean, we could be in animals right now. There are some dangers of going into animals first, which is why we haven't done that. But, you know, it works for it would work for your pets, too. So it would certainly happen before the talking heads get back together. Yes, I'm, I'm <laughs> pretty convinced of that. Right. Well, that's good. It's fascinating stuff. You know, I, I do want to get back to your producing stuff for a brief second, because one of the things that was also true of our interview in 1990 is one of the digital audio tapes you brought in was the first album by uh, by Live that uh. Uh, that you produced and you know not to 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 jump on your coattails but my wife will will tell you this is true every time Live has been on the radio I say to her you know because of Jerry Harrison I may have been the first disc jockey in America <laughs> to play hey, this band <laughs> I may have been considering they sold. You know, four straight platinum records. I'll happily jump on the bandwagon on those guys. Well, they were, they are, and they were a great band. Those albums really have stood the test of time. One of the uh, the songs, one of the albums that you produced that I absolutely love, uh, the song "Blue on Black" from Kenny Wayne Shepherd. I think that is like one of the uh, just a great rock and roll song. I agree. It's just wonderful. See that what happened there? There was an. Uh, an A&R man named Jeff Aldrich, who worked for Giant Records. And he had brought me in to produce Big Head Todd. And they did a version of Boom, Boom, Boom that I got uh, John Lee Hooker to sing on. So after Kenny Wayne had made his first record, Jeff was bringing me up as a potential producer. And he played him Boom, Boom, Boom. And Kenny basically said, this sounds great. And if he can do this with Todd, well, then I think he could do a great job with me. And you did. Yeah, you did. we did. It is, it's an interesting thing, you know, sometimes you start to see over time, you know, when you're working on a record, sometimes the, the record you're working on right then seems as good as any record you've ever made. <laughs> but then, you know, with uh, six months or a year, you can realize why the records that had the most resonance just broke through more. I mean... I think that Kenny's guitar solo in Blue on Black and his sound, this kind of true, really electric quality it is of, of his guitar. You know, there's an interesting story about that, is that when I began that record, Kenny Wayne Shepherd had a different singer. And we were going to start at the record plant here in, uh, in Sausalito, which mm-hmm. is the same place where Inner Visions and Rumors was made, were made. I get a call the morning, literally, that we're going to like set up that evening. And from Kenny Wayne's father, who managed him, it says, Jerry, the lead singer showed up at the airport drunk, and I fired him. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not going to be there today. So I put it back, and we went on this mad search looking for a singer. Uh, fortunately, they found Noah Hunt. And Noah came out, but he, of course he was, you know, nervous. And we, I would have him 
sitting on a 57 in the control room while we tracked the rest of the band. And he'd be in front of the speakers, sort of facing us usually, because that way there wouldn't be, there'd be less bleed on his microphone because of the pattern on the microphone. And in the end, the vocal on Blue on Black is the one we did in the control room as we tracked it. I tried to use better mics and to do it over and over again and did all this work. And finally, I just said, nope, there's just something special about that first time he did it. That's it. You know, but that was, you know, he, he wasn't self-conscious at that moment. And it's a little bit like what I was talking about, about Remain in Light. There's something that at first full time that you just go and do it has a uniqueness. It's not maybe not, it's not the only great way to do it. It's not the only, may not even be the best performance you'll ever do on it, but it's going to be a different performance and special. Well, Jerry, listen, I, I appreciate just you spending some time with me today. I've been a big fan for an awful long period of time. And I hope it, uh, that uh, you'll continue to go back out on the road. I'd love to see you and Adrian play with Turquoise more often. I don't know if there's, there's plans to do that, but I certainly hope so. Well, we're playing, right now we're planning to do uh, Bonnaroo, uh, Bottle Rock here in California, Summerfest in Milwaukee. The the Joy Theater down at Jazz Fest, and then we're playing a Halloween show in Florida. As, you know, as long as COVID doesn't, you know, this the Delta variant is is may throw some uh, monkey wrenches into all these plans, but I hope not. I hope not too, Jerry. Nice to talk to you again, and uh, and best of luck with everything. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thank, Thank you. you, Jerry. There you go, Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads. Hey, if you've enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share it with everyone you know. Give it a good review and check out our regular updates on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Baxi's Fun Bag. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and you can email me anytime at Baxi's Rock102.com. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.